0: To JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. All right. Okay, so um let's dig in. Let's um let's get into uh, pop parenting. Welcome back, everybody. Um For those of you who can see behind me, we are looking at the film this week, uh, As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson. Um, I believe this film won a couple of Oscars, um, which is kind of interesting. I wanted to, I'll do a quick sort of on one foot um, setting it up and then um, let's just dig right into it. So, um, so this film really is. An exploration of this character that Jack Nicholson plays who's clearly in some ways you know debilitated by his OCD and anxiety Um, but he's a novelist he's a writer he's clearly very successful I think he says he's on his 62nd published novel at this point and he writes romance novels Um, you know he uh Every day goes to the very same restaurant, brings his own cutlery and orders the same thing and demands to have the same waitress. This waitress, we sort of meet her character. She has a son who has been ill since he was six months old, and she's consistently having to leave work to take care of him or stay up late nights to take care of him. And they're not quite sure um, in the beginning what's wrong with him. But you know, when it comes down to it, she has to leave work at a certain point. Um, and not and uh, Melvin, who's Jack Nicholson's character, uh, sort of starts to lose it a little bit because his whole routine is starting to fall apart. He ends up having to take care of a dog from his neighbor who's beaten up and then his waitress isn't there at the restaurant. And we're sort of seeing all of these characters deal with life in, their, in the ways that they cope. Um, and I think that's really what we see throughout the movie is, you know, the relationships that sort of form are somewhat secondary to watching these characters sort of evolve as they start to figure out how to deal with life in general. So um, uh, did I miss anything?
1: <laughs> Sounds good to me. Okay. <clears throat> uh, what I, do you know, want the- to
0: look at with this movie, Abram? I know you love it. So I, I would love to hear what you think.
1: When uh, when I was working on my, my first book, I knew before I even wrote a word, I wanted to use films to illustrate uh, themes because my favorite books that I read in, uh, um, as a therapist um, always, you know, would focus on a film that I knew and they would, you know, they would highlight an idea. Um, and so I knew before I even wrote one word, I was going to pick films and I had a wow. sense of which films. So the first film I knew I was going to focus on, which we have, have oh, You know what, Ellie, we haven't touched on this film. What film? Jerry Maguire.
0: Oh, we haven't done done Jerry Maguire.
1: (laughs) So I knew I wanted to do Jerry Maguire because I think that uh, the You Complete Me line is a very, very powerful introduction to um, the Western idea of what brings people together that is counterintuitive to most people. So I wanted to, but but then I needed a bookend, another film that shows a more mature way of love and as good as it gets was that film so i spoke about it
0: really that's so yeah
1: interesting. yeah so i and and actually at the uh, at the Jewish Family Institute when when i speak i often will reference the you yeah. completely line and mm-hmm. make me want to be a better man line yes so it was uh it's a pleasure to speak about this in this way and focus on this film because i've written about it um i uh and and just i find that a lot of films um, they tackle love and relationships in a in a way that is uh, blanched, um, sterilized in some way, and um, I don't think they do justice to uh, some of the shadowier parts of how we fall in love and, and how we connect. Uh, right. I thought that as good as it gets does a pretty good job at depicting um the best the best of the gritty i would say because it's still it's still a movie right but um
0: i also it does it really gets in there and kind of shows the the lighter funnier sides but really the painful deeper sides of of dealing with you know all of the things that all the characters are dealing with it doesn't pull its punches in terms of making anything um easier to watch
1: right and the other thing it does is that if, you know, um, uh, having, you know, uh, doing this job for quite some time, although I, I'm not a CBT specialist, a cognitive behavioral specialist, like so people don't come and see me generally for phobias and, and OCD type behaviors, but everybody has something, right? Because we get reactive. And so OCD, uh, you know, that type of behavioral... Uh, you can call it like a tick or something is something I do see in my office. Mm-hmm. I thought this job does a good job at showing sort of the, one of the most extreme uh, cases uh, mm. very well, meaning that I don't think that they, I don't think that they, uh, the writers um, downplayed how much an extreme case of OCD can get in the way of living just a regular life. Yeah. Uh, and so that's another thing about this film that I thought was, uh, was quite accurate, but um Yeah,
0: you also see so interestingly, like, in a way, it's a bit of that frog being boiled in water. I don't think he realizes, um, the main character, how much he's shaped his life around his anxiety until things start to go wrong.
1: Well, I mean, so here, you're touching on something that's really important. And if therapy, when therapy works, that's one of the things that I think uh, is, um, the first step, the first part of the ladder. Mm -hmm. Um, most people come into therapy with a focus on other, that's how we come into therapy. We're angry with our mother. We're angry either with ourselves, Mm -hmm. even, even that is in a mature way. Usually it's a distortion or we're angry with our spouse or our kids, or when I say angry, worried, angry, some sort of other focused projection onto someone. And the first goal of therapy, at least what I would consider to be, um, uh, a good therapy is to help people appreciate um, how how their lives are being impacted by the rituals and the anxious impulses and. The, the sort of programming that we all do. This is not. This is not just about people who have a diet. You know, they've been diagnosed by their psychiatrist. Um, we all do some version of what Melvin does. I don't care right. who you are. I don't yep. care what you do. Some people just biting their nails, and some people it's shopping too much on Amazon. But we all do something that when we get anxious, when you turn up the heat of anxiety in your life, yep. you are you are programmed to do something in a way, and you've been doing it probably. It depends. I, I would say that some of this stuff, probably you're looking at twin years, maybe, you know, uh, if there was a trauma, for example, you'll hear I'll have adults in my life say that, you know, they've been checking the locks or Flicking light switches on ever since they were six, in particular for kids who go through a a real trying to get like a house fire or something, Mm -hmm. or something, something, um, a nodal event that really sticks in their mind, and that behavior continues. We all do that, so I I,
0: for sure. I I, I remember as a kid doing some of those things, like there was, um, I was speaking to somebody about this the other day, actually. They were telling me that their daughter does certain things, and I was saying, Yeah, I remember I had all kinds of, um, structures that I was trying to put in place for life to help me navigate the chaos. You know, there were certain stairs I couldn't step on if the laundry was on it, or certain days were negative days and certain days were pot. Like I had all kinds of things that I was, you know, trying to put into place a way to understand how the world worked and, you know, creatively figuring out how to do that. Um, Now, those things didn't stay with me as I grew, as I matured, you know, most of them I would say almost all of them fell away. But for sure, it was a natural response to chaos in the environment.
1: Yeah. By the way, just to um, uh, plug a book, not mine, uh, an amazing book called Sanity and Sanctity about mm. OCD in the ultra-Orthodox community in Mea Shearim in mm. Jerusalem. Mm. It is an amazing book by uh, uh, two psychologists in Israel. One is religious, one is not. And the entire book is about how do you tell the difference between a ritual and a habit in prayer uh, or Jewish observance? And when is it um, a problematic sort of psychiatric?
0: Right. Now, this isn't right.
1: the way I tend to see things, but right. if you're looking the for. The difference between
0: kavana and neuroses. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, right. I'll just give you one taste if you're, if you're interested in if, who, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast, if this is up your alley. They they give an example of a young man. I think um, I forget exactly what he was doing. Maybe he wasn't having sex with his wife until a certain holy something. And so it's a conundrum because if you're not having if you're not having sexual intercourse with your wife, you're not having kids, which is a problem in that community. So they brought in the Rebbe, the big big leader, uh, into the therapist office. So you have to picture the scene. You have a you have a secular psychologist with a Rebbe with a big black long coat and long side locks and payas and mm-hmm. sitting there with this chassid, this young observant jewish guy Mm. and the rebbe conducts a seance or something in the office and the therapist said he has never seen anything like channeling angels i mean this book is fascinating fascinating so it's a really interesting exploration of culture and anxiety and Mm. prayer it's beautiful anyways just go. to
0: say, for those of you who don't know, that's not a regular behavior of rabbis in Jerusalem. <laughs> they are not generally doing those types of things. In fact, it's not really something we go into. But yeah, super interesting that in that particular community, those are some of the ways. Look, I, I mean, we are in a world right now where you know, spirituality has been supplanted by science you know, the efficacy of which I'm not always sure is that much better sometimes. So, you know, I think it's an interesting thing to see, a, you know, those two people in the room together. There's a, there's a book actually that I'm reading right now called The Rabbi's Brain, hmm. which is about a new type of study that they're doing at a university in the States called neurotheology and understanding how the brain is affected by um, by religion. And it's written by also a rabbi and a neuroscientist and they're working together to study how the brain is affected by study, by prayer, by all of those types of things. It's really interesting.
1: But on, on a, a, much, a much more mundane note than neuroscience, Ellie, I think it's important <laughs> to announce uh, the very exciting uh, um, news that I discovered this week that our podcast was ranked number 41 out of top 50 podcasts <laughs> in the world to listen to in 2021. It's
0: very exciting.
1: Very exciting. Um,
0: what did your mom say?
1: Well, I, I, I don't know if my mom, I said, no, I, I wondered if I told, you know, I couldn't tell if my late Bubby was a lot, she would, you know, my, right. like my late my late bu- Bubby was always very proud to talk about me to her friends in Florida. <laughs> so I can't tell if she would tell her friends, you know, Oy vey, my grandson, he he's 41 to 50 where she'd call me and say, why so low? Right. Why are you so down the list? <laughs> you know? But, you know, my wife said, by the way, Elisa said, she's like, you know, there's a lot of podcasts in the world, you know. To be number forty-one isn't so yeah, bad. Yeah, it's pretty
0: good to be in the top fifty. is kind of fun. So yeah, like way, I'm sure kind of
1: I bet you Metallica has launched an album that never cracked, you know, uh, top thirty. You know, and they were probably pretty happy with you know forty-one.
0: Metallica is the bar for fame. Well, you know,
1: like you know, not every band cracks the top ten. Okay, um, so here here's what uh, here's what um, I wanted to touch on, Ellie, and uh, let's see where this goes. Okay, um, so whenever, you know, when you watch Melvin with the hand soap and the hot water, and really it's torture. I mean, you know, you can see him, right? His hand, he goes, ah, 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 you know, he touched the hot water and he does this whole thing. So it, while these rituals calm him down in some way, they function for him to bring some sort of control and semblance of peace in his world, it's also torturous to him. Right. Um. And, right. you know, when you watch that, the, the general therapy world, if you go into your typical mental health uh, uh, organization, they understand uh, OCD in a, a very certain way. And usually it's, it's done in a cause and effect sort of thing. So OCD is understood to be caused by one or a couple of specific factors. So for example, you'll hear a therapist say it's genetics. Mm-hmm. Right. There's something in the brain that gets passed down to the brain or, you know, something like that that gets passed down from generation to generation. Cause and effect genetics. Another branch of therapy talks a lot about um, uh, attachment, abuse, um, childhood trauma, and that that leads to the rituals of some sort of OCD like behavior. So, again, cause and effect. You, you had a, uh, something happened when you were three and now this is what you were doing ever since. So mm-hmm. cause and effect. Uh, today, and every podcast that we that we, you and I have, um, I approach things from the world of systems, of family systems theory. And family systems theory has a different take on this. They don't discount biology. Dr. Murray mm-hmm. Bowen uh, was originally a surgical resident, and then he became a psychiatrist. And Dr. Michael Kerr, who took over for him, a psychiatrist. Um, and so they very much um, spoke about uh, neuroscience and where neuroscience was going. Now, this was back in the 80s and 90s, mm. but they were very excited to see where that field was going. So they don't discount the biological component of uh, dreams or depression or happiness. I mean, there it clearly right. is a neurochemical component to what we do. Right. The question for clients in my office is, what do you do about it? <laughs> like, right. you know, right. A lot of clients will come into to my office and go, wow, I just love reading about the teenage brain. I just..." And I, But I, what I often ask them is, so you've read five books about the teenage brain. How right. is that helping you parent? your kid right.
0: has it made a difference <laughs> right.
1: yeah I mean yeah, yeah it's great that you understand that the reptilian brain does this and your kid does, but how, how is that helping you fighting about their marijuana use exactly right. and the truth is it's very hard to, uh, to to practically put that into um into play
0: although I will say like there are certain things that I've read as a t- as a parent of you know kids who are becoming teens like I remember reading um uh there's a book called untangled Um, I can't remember that it's Laura something or other. And she writes about, you know, what are kids trying to do? They're trying to get from being a kid to being an adult and all the skills that they're trying to acquire in between there. And I remember reading that and it, you know, what did help me parent out of that book was it calmed me down. It calmed me down to realize these are skills and things they're trying to acquire. So some of these behaviors aren't personal they're behaviors that are trying to learn something and so then I had a context to be able to look at those behaviors and not get triggered or take it personally so that was what was helpful for me it wasn't necessarily where it says well they do this and you should do that it was more like oh here's some of the context of what's going on and that I found helpful
1: yeah, that is you know that is such an important point, Ellie. I'm glad you brought that up because often parents will ask me, "Can you give just give me something? Do you have a book? Do you have right a set of exercises, a meditation that I can do?" And um, I really like what you said. I got to remember that because in the back of my mind, what I'm thinking is. Do you think this is an information problem? Because 99% mm. of the time, it is not an information problem. In fact, right. one could argue that we have too much information, i.e., yeah. you go online and you Google bump on arm and you right. get every <laughs> cancer diagnosis. It's not helpful to you. It makes 100%. you anxious. But what you just said is a really nice way of um, a, a barometer test, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of does... Does reading about neuroscience in the adolescent brain regulate your anxiety to help you think clear, or do you leave reading it going, oh my God.
0: Right. Yeah, right? for sure. I could that's a really that nice way. That and get, a- get anxious, or they could read it and say, oh, okay, that's, that's helpful. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um,
1: I have to remember that because it's a a nice way of putting it. Okay, so here's the system's take on uh, all types of anxiety and OCD. And what I love about the field that I work in, they don't slice and dice. Mm -hmm. Meaning that when Dr. Bowen talked about people having symptoms, he meant all symptoms. And by the way, just to be clear, Dr. Bowen studied schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Okay, So he wasn't like he was working with run-of-the-mill neurotic. I mean, his area of focus, his entire theory was based on schizophrenia. And what he noticed is that there really isn't big differences between schizophrenia, depression, bipolar, this. He he sort of saw it as a continuum of functioning across um, a broad spectrum of ways that we get reactive. And by the way, in Britain right now, right now, as we are speaking, there is a group of physicians – um from all different types, neurologists, psychiatrists who want to completely redo the DSM, wow. that, that, that slicing into, like and I, look, my wife's a psychiatrist. We've talked about this. The differences between schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia is so like minute, right, right? right. And, and these terms were created, and God bless them, but they were created by a few men and maybe a woman, you know, back in the 60s and <laughs> 70s, in New York City, right? Mm. Based on observation. Right. And so, what people are saying now is, we need a new way of of, of conceptualizing um, how people get reactive with the best neuroscience that we have. Right. Bowen was ahead of the; I would say he was ahead of the pack back in the sixties and seventies because he mm-hmm. was saying something similar that he doesn't slice and dice OCD versus the He sees it as a, just a continuum of ways human beings get reactive. So this is what this is a, a systems take. When someone comes into my office and they, they talk to me about, um, let's say OCD. If I was seeing Melvin, he was talking about his OCD. What I'm thinking about, I'm not looking for the, the cause. What did your mother do that caused this? Or how is your wife contributing to this? Or the market, the, the stock market is doing well. What I'm thinking about is what type of disturbance happened in your family system that provoked a symptom in you and likely other people in your family. So what 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 I mean by that is, you know, Ellie, how in your life things have kind of like a rote part to it. Like you do, you just go about your day most of the time, like day to day. Like things don't change that radically, unless you <laughs> <Especially> purposely now. <laughs> well, but but when you think about your life right. in general, though, right? Yeah. But then something happens, like a, a wedding, a death, a miscarriage, COVID. Something happens, and yeah. there's a the homeostasis of your life is. Is um, is disrupted. Yep. The, dis- the, the, the disturbance. There's a disturbance in the regularity of your life. Mm-hmm. And what what Dr. Bowen and, and, and a lot of the fa- early family researchers noticed is that symptoms develop when there's a disturbance in the homeostasis of a of a system, and people get symptomatic. Right. And w- we tend to focus too much on what's the symptom. What is OCD? How do we understand OCD? But what but what they said is that it's just human beings trying to adjust to a disturbance in the homeostasis. Now, the question, of course, is why do human beings like homeostasis? What is it about us that we that we uh, like that or that we crave it, really? Because we get bored with it, too. Right. Human beings are allergic to anxiety, probably for an evolutionary reason. We don't like feeling anxious. Anybody who knows that feeling of anxiety Will do almost anything to get rid of it, especially if it's profound anxiety. Yeah. And if you have a grandfather, for example, who dies in the family, who's the patriarch, right, who, who does all the holidays, who is the financial sort of um, hub of the entire family, and the grandfather dies – Right, and now the kids are fighting about the inheritance, and now the grandkids are watching this, and and now uh, uh, Christmas or Passover comes, and no one knows who's going to do it. Now the siblings are fighting. That's going to create enough of a disturbance that what you'll see is if you pay attention, if you can watch the family, one person has a back pain, then there's a divorce. This person's depression kicks in, and all you can see—it's amazing—you start seeing symptoms right. pop up in different people. So. Right. So we don't know enough about Melvin's past. This is where I'm going with this. Mm. The film makes it sound as if Mel- Melvin just has this thing called OCD. It's like it's, it's right. a cause and effect thing. It's in his brain. And he talks right. about it that way, right. you know, later on in the film um although like
0: what we do see is he doesn't have any family to speak of or that he speaks to he doesn't really have any friends like he doesn't seem to have any kind of support system he clearly is kind of a bit on his own you know like we don't see anything of a connection with family at all which is
1: which is which is very true in a lot of the films l you and i have covered right right? Um, but and, and let's be you know let's be clear here these filmmakers are making a film right? right. Uh, they're, they're not making a multi-generational you know, uh, you know, uh, thing. Uh, I think that you and I have talked about one day we'd like to tackle ordinary people mm-hmm. uh, about a trauma in a family. In there, you hear a little bit more about um, family and family of origin stuff. And you can see how a disturbance in the system, in this case, it was a child who dies, right. uh, how, how it disturbs the system, not that everyone in the family becomes symptomatic. But we don't know enough about Melvin. So I'm only saying this to suggest. That we really just don't know about what happened to Melvin, but I can tell you this: when I see a young, well, a young, an adult in my office with that type of profound um, anxiety, there something probably happened in the family. It probably happened. He's been probably dealing with something like this for a long, long time. This is not something that just happened um, last year, uh, for example.
0: Yeah, we do see that in the film where he shows up at a psychiatrist's office again and sort of barges into his office. And the guy's like, you haven't been here in two years. Like, why are you just walking in here with no appointment? It's a very funny scene, but clearly he's been trying for a long time to try to sort this out, which is, you know, so interesting. I remember I saw a talk once by um, someone from CAMH that was speaking about uh, anorexia. And they were saying, you know, his take was genetics load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. I always oh, remember that's, that yeah, line. That's a great and, line. And I just felt like that's so interesting because they were studying twins, like where one twin manifests with anorexia and the other one doesn't. And what's the difference there? And so I just thought that, so I wonder, would Bowen agree with a statement like that? Would that go along with what you're saying about family systems?
1: yeah oh for sure but it, the question is again if you go to a psychiatrist's office and this is true by the way in 2021 it's true it was true in the in 1994 and it was true mm-hmm. in 1972 right if you go to your psychiatrist's office right now anywhere camh Chem- mm-hmm. cmha uh mount sinai hospital here in toronto if you go into their office you're not going into a scanning machine they're not taking blood work right
0: right so it's when great. we right. when
1: we talk about genetic again it's an interesting intellectual exercise but we're not swabbing your throat the way we do for uh, strep right. throat for example right there's so,
0: no blood test for there's like, no blood almost test almost anything so, in the dsm right right
1: now we you know i think um, this <clears throat> this clinician, CAMH, is probably talking about autopsies on brains, where, they, where mm-hmm. they're trying to understand, you know, after someone passes in terms of someone has schizophrenia, can we understand, and some brain imaging, but we really don't do it all that much. And so mm-hmm. a, a lot of this stuff is a work in progress. It's very exciting where this is going. Um, but again, I'm a, you know, I like to think of myself, Ellie, as a real meat and potatoes therapist. I'm a practical guy. I want to know what works, and that's all I care about. And most right. of the parents in my office, really, they just want to know what works. Right, right, and so um, here's a question that I uh, I wrote down um, this week, thinking about our conversation today, that I think is something that I has helped me as a therapist when I'm working with someone like Melvin. And you get overwhelmed with the details of the symptom, like you see the hand washing and everything. You get overwhelmed yeah. with that. So yeah. here's what I'm thinking. This is the question I was thinking watching the film. What function does the does the symptom have for Melvin? How does this serve him in some way? How does it protect him? What meaning does it give it for him? And it is not my job to tell Melvin what that is. But let's talk about that for a second. We see him do all of these rituals walking down the street, right, with the sidewalk cracks, kind of like your step thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We see him washing his hands, right? Um, We also see him um, being very adversarial with human beings, which runs completely counter to a soft romantic author who writes about love all the time.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, he's so careful in his words when he writes. And yet when he interacts with people, he literally has no filter and just blurts out whatever, like literally the first thing that pops into his head. It's so fascinating.
1: You know, it's the old Woody Allen line, those who can't teach, uh, uh, what is it? Those who can't do teach and those who can't teach, teach gym. Now, nothing (laughs) hates gym teachers. That's a Woody Allen joke. Don't shoot the messenger. But, um, you know, (laughs) I, I I think it's true. You know, I think it's true, by the way, in my profession, there are many therapists, if you look At their families and their relationships, they are a mess. (laughs) But they're very good therapists, right? right? So, uh, you know, okay. So, uh, so let me ask you: If you you were to think about you, like even you just like how how does it serve you? How how did it look? I can
0: say, as a kid, it served me, and I I think even as an adult, I was saying to somebody yesterday, they were talking about how. Um, they know themselves that if they don't worry enough when they're on the plane, that part of what happens is their worry is what keeps their plane in the air. You know, like that there's really a sense of, you know, though I remember as a kid, there was a sense of feeling um, like I could organize something that was chaotic and control something that was out of my control. Mm -hmm. And that was a way of temporarily calming my um, discomfort with things feeling disorganized and out of control. Um, And I mean, I totally identify with what, you know, I I thought it was great when my friend said that this week, you know, if I don't worry enough, the plane's, you know, the plane's (laughs) going to crash. Right. So there's some kind of sense of like, my state will create order.
1: Um, Somehow what I'm doing. Because you can control not stepping on that crack. You can wash your hands 25 times. You can't really do anything about COVID coming or a pandemic. That's pretty scary. Right. And if you grow up in a family that has enough disturbances, you will be you will learn through osmosis the world as a very scary place. So you have to do something with that constant state of arousal of, of fear. Yeah. Right. So you know, the, the word that we use, you know, in, in Judaism is rachmanis, you know, that you have to you feel, you know, empathy, Absolutely. rahmanis. You know, you have to feel for people like this because they they probably internally are going. Through day to day, an incredible amount of fear and, ang- yeah. and anxiety. Yeah. Um, you know, Ellie, when I was uh, when I first started working with teenagers in the late '90s, um, uh, I would uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, um, it was usually young girls. They would come into my office and they would cut, right? Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to understand the difference between like a suicide attempt and cutting. But I, I sort of um, uh, I had to, you know, brush up on on. You know what exactly is cutting, self mutilation, and when you get a better understanding of what it is, you get past the jarring nature of it all. Like you know, because mm. it, it's really shocking when a gr- young sure. girl comes in and she raises up her arm and she has cuts all the way up her arm. And so one of the things that you learn uh, it, it, by asking the girls, by the way, you just you ask them, like, wh- how does this serve you? And what what's so interesting is a lot of these um, <clears throat> a lot of these young uh, these young girls were, were abused in some way. I mean, it is quite clear that their stories, there's a universal story with these young girls that they, there was some sort of abuse that happened a long time ago. And how they dealt with the abuse is they sort of numb themselves out to all sort of touch and relationships which is understandable, right? You numb yourself out so you don't feel the pain. But the problem, of course, is human beings don't like being numb. We, we, we seek touch, and we seek meaning, and we seek um, uh, experiences in life where we feel. If we don't feel, we feel dead. And so what right, these- Right, because
0: I think that type of numbing isn't selective. It's, it's napalm numbing, right? Like you can't numb just one thing. The moment you start numbing, you numb everything. Exactly, and that's yeah. the problem with it. You think <clears> it's going to be selective, but it's not.
1: Right, right, um, right. And of course, you know, I mean, once again, Rahman is an empathy. I mean, yeah, you know, course. whatever people do, what they do, right? I mean, and that's what they do. Mm-hmm. So what these girls would tell me—it was so interesting when I first heard this—is um, that when they cut, the pain. The pain is painful. First of all, it is painful, but it ushers in some sort of euphoric high for these young girls where they feel something. And it's also that they can control when they feel. It's a very hard thing to break, by the way, because it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a very maladaptive way of coping. But I just wanted to give right. you an example in terms of the question of if you're ever, you know, trying to understand something with your kid or yourself and, the, and you think that's ridiculous or you know, why are you picking your zits? That's stupid. You're making yourself look ugly. You got to stop and think there is generally a function behind whatever a human being is doing. And if you want to really have a more of a certain Martin Buber-esque I down moment with your kid or a spouse or yourself, you have to be, you have to be able to calm yourself down and think, you know, people generally don't do stupid things to themselves. I I mean that, by the way, right across the board, we're seeking meaning in some way. And so these type of OCD anxious rituals that we do, have meaning for the individual and and clearly for Melvin, it it mm. it, it brings some sort of safety to him and I, anyways i just right. i don't know if i'm harping we on this see too that, long but- we
0: see that escalate you know when we there's a scene where he finds out he's going to have to give the dog back that he was taking care of that clearly he develops a relationship with this dog and when he finds out that he's going to have to give the dog back he closes the door and he starts locking He starts, you know, click, clack, click, clack, click, clack, like locking over and over and then starting again. And you see, you know, he's trying to employ this coping mechanism to deal with the pain of, I'm going to have to give this dog back. Um, you know, and it's actually beautiful in the movie because they kind of make the dog sort of lie down on the carpet and watch him having that rahmanas for him, having that like you know, it sort of plays on your empathy in that way, where you see, oh my gosh, this is so painful to watch. So, yeah, you definitely see in that moment of escalation of the emotional body, right? The rituals kick in even more. Um, yeah, I, I,
1: you're actually you're bringing up a, an, another interesting point about this. Clients will often ask me, you know um, will I ever be cured of this thing? Whatever, whatever it is, whatever they're doing, will I ever be Mm -hmm. cured of this thing? And it's always, you know, in therapy, it's always, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I mean, they're, they're, you know, things are are much more subtle than, uh, than, um, we like to think. Look, the fact is if I think about me and I think about the ways I get anxious, Mm -hmm. I get anxious in such a predictable way that I can trace it back just to, to where my memory goes. And if I'm really good, I can probably trace it to when my parents got anxious because it's not that different, by the way. Right. It's very interesting. It's not that different. Mm-hmm. Um, I react to my kids in not such a dissimilar way that some combination of my mom um, and dad did. Yep. Uh, and, that's, and I've done a lot of work in this area. And so what I, what I often say uh, to people what I think about is um, the goal here The goal here is to change in the slightest of ways a multi-generational pattern that's been probably going on for, depends what kind of historian you are, nine, 10, 12, 14 generations. And if you can just alter and and, and be a little bit more uh, calm and principle-centered and not react, just react, with a little bit, your kids will inherit that growth and it can have a profound impact on the subsequent generation and how many um, uh, others after that. Um, So I think that's the good news, but we do live in sort of an Advil Tylenol culture where it's kind of like, well, okay, if I do this therapy, can I cure my depression, anxiety, whatever? And generally I think it's, you know, how do we live with the, you know, with the lemons that we have and turn into lemonade, blah, blah, blah. But I I, I genuinely think that, therapist to over I've always thought Ellie that what would be funny is any therapist or self-help author that promises a cure should refund every single book And course that they offer for people when if they're not cured so if they say this is if you do this thing you will be cured of um insomnia for example look i mean that's also a hard one
0: because you know even jewishly we say to a doctor you have to do everything you can but ultimately like whether this person lives or dies is not in your hands like you you can really give everyone all the tools and you do everything that you can within your knowledge and within your gifts and within your power to help, help another person, but ultimately, you know, how they respond to that treatment and how, you know, there's so many factors that go into that. So, you know, I think a lot of the time, sometimes the scientific parlance around mental health and emotional intelligence works against the project, I think, because. How so? What do you mean? I think sometimes putting it in the parlance of a cure rather than you know, you, what you actually need is to grow. It's not about you have a virus, you know, it's about you're immature and you need to grow. And so this idea that, oh, once I get from point A to point B to point C, then I'll be, and C is for cure, I'll be better. And I'll never have to deal with it again, is a, is like a weird paradigm to put it in because it's not about, you're not a car. You know like it's not that the engine's broken you got to get it fixed you're like a person and people i in my per you know in my paradigm people are about growing
1: um, and Emily, i i i just thought of something um, that you said um i bought a book about dreams by a psychoanalyst in toronto uh probably in 2006 and mm-hmm. so he said a lot of my he, he's a physician because a lot of my colleagues were more biological in nature uh, they'll say that dreams are nothing but the reason why dreams are so mysterious is because they're nothing but random impulses mm-hmm. of um, synapses firing and all this kind of thing so mm-hmm. he, he has this joke in the book he's like you know he's like they're right they're right I'm going to try that on my wife next time when I'm having a dream and, and I'm screaming out in in the pleasure of the moment our neighbor our neighbor's name you know <laughs> Alice oh Alice oh Alice and my wife wakes me up and she's like what? you were dreaming about Alice and, and you, you turn to you, you turn to her and you say oh it's it's nothing. It's just random firing of electrical impulses, and see if it works. You right. know, see if it works to dial right. down the. Yeah. So look, yeah, I mean, there are people who are very deterministic in terms of you know their worldview, and, and God bless them. And I think I think all of it together helps us get a better understanding of um, sort of the wonderful and mysterious ways that um, that we uh, we get reactive as human beings uh, right. with each other. Now you opened up uh, the door into the next. Topic Ellie okay, uh, let's do it <laughs> So the question is if, if you know if lest anyone think I'm being quite bleak in terms of putting turning uh, lemons into lemonade here with with Melvin's anxiety, now let's talk about the good stuff because this is where I think the, the film shines. Mm. It really shines. Um, I am going to read a quote. I just sent out my newsletter last night, and it's a quote that I put in my newsletter from Dr. David Snarch in his book, Intimacy and Desire. Here is the quote, and this, I think, encapsulates Melvin in the first half of the movie. If you can't regulate your own emotional temperature, you'll regulate everyone around you to keep yourself comfortable. So,
0: right. Okay, you want to read it again just for- let break this down sake. a little
1: bit. So Melvin has trouble, right, calming himself down. Mm -hmm. So he has a conundrum. He doesn't know how. The only way Melvin can calm himself down is by all the rituals he has in his house. So, So if he never leaves his apartment, he'll be okay. The problem for Melvin is there's this cute waitress he wants to go see. So he has to go on sidewalks in busy New York and bump into people, which is going to provoke him so much anxiety. But Melvin has a problem. Melvin's problem is he doesn't know how to regulate his anxiety. So what does he have to do? If you can't regulate your own anxiety, you're going to try to get everybody else to accommodate to your anxiety. That's why when he goes yeah. into a restaurant, he's picking fights with everybody. Mm-hmm. Because he needs he needs that. Remember, there are Jews at this table, which is one of the funniest <laughs> lines. From the there are Jews at this table, which is just hilarious. Oh my gosh, it's uh, but, terrible. But that, but that idea that whenever he is around <laughs> people, he needs to get them so upset at his level, he actually gets them to get so upset. Mm. It's interesting. What well, anybody he comes in, in, into contact with, he gets them so ramped up,
0: right? right? He normalizes himself. So everybody's like him. Interesting.
1: Right. And so no one now he doesn't have to touch them. He doesn't right. have to interact with them. He doesn't have to compromise.
0: Nothing. Right. Usually he just, just triggers everyone. Him. So that yeah, it's so interesting. So I mean it's interesting when you think about that in a parenting sphere. How so? You know? well, like if you're anxious and you start yelling at everybody in the house and you get everybody all upset, you know, like you're trying to, you know, you can't regulate yourself. So you'll try to control what everybody else is doing. And, and then in doing that, you, everybody else gets upset also, right? This one's crying. This one slams the door, this one, this, like, you know, and then everybody's sort of dealing with their own stuff and you still don't have to necessarily deal with yourself.
1: Look, Ellie, here's a perfect example. Your, your, your 16-year-old daughter brings home a boy, right, that you don't like. Now, what are the chances that your kid's going to bring home a boyfriend or girlfriend you don't like? I give it 50-50. Okay? <laughs> For most parents, I give it about 50-50, right? There's a good chance your, your, your kid's going to bring home someone that you, you just I don't know, you wouldn't date if it was you. Okay. A parent, according to David Starch, who cannot regulate their own emotional temperature, so they'll regulate everyone else around them to keep yourself comfortable, Right. Mm-hmm. So the parent sees their kid picking a choice. And because of fusion, the parent almost sees it as if it's their choice too. Right. So right. they will have to make their kid so uncomfortable with their choice to keep them calm. So their kid breaks up with the kid. some version of that. Right. Right. Okay? Okay. And you can see where this causes a very big problem for families. Now, again, if you live on your own, that's fine. But if you need to regulate everybody else's anxiety to be calm, it becomes a madhouse. And I, I have to say that I think we all live some version of what David Stark just talking about. Now, he's talking about mm-hmm. this in a marriage, how couples who have trouble regulating will try to regulate their partner's anxiety to keep them calm. Right. Okay. So that's Melvin. That's That quote, I think, encapsulates Melvin. Any questions about that?
0: No, I think it's really interesting. It has such a, you know, it, it just it, when you think about it in a system, even if you think about it in a workplace, you know, if one person is like super anxious, they're just gonna go and make everybody else anxious <laughs> in That's order right. to regulate their own anxiety, um, and then everyone's like, ah, oh, it's the worst place to work in the world. You know, it's if it's so you have fascinating. been paying attention
1: to what's happening on campuses in the New York Times right yeah. now, if you were paying, you are watching a bunch of very, very reactive, anxious young people
0: mm-hmm.
1: trying to regulate, you know, not to say some of their concerns aren't justified, meaning right. it's not based in justice. Right. But what they're doing is they're, they're trying to regulate everybody else to keep them calm. That's this whole idea of safe spaces. This is literally what David Snarch is saying.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Because the idea- then if you're not anxious, you're not part of the cool crowd. <laughs> like if you're not worried and upset about everything that's going on, like you... Uh, you have a problem. <laughs>
1: Which is Look, this is so a rabbit hole thing. that you know. I, I, I'm, I'm purposely not go down. Okay, but, fine. <laughs> but it it, it is. I, I will say this. It's I will say This it is a serious, serious problem that's mm-hmm. happening with young people right now. That the only way I could be calm is if yours is anxious as me.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Or you have to change everything to accommodate my feelings because right. if I feel scared, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's like hold on. When when did your feelings of being scared become a societal danger. Well, it is right now. And and, and Interesting. that means that the minions are running <laughs> are right. running the Madhouse. Right. It's a problem. Let's come back to the movie. Okay. Yeah. So, another quote from the great, uh, the late Dr. David Snarch, by the way, who died um, a couple of months ago. Uh, unfortunately, uh, David Snarch is uh, by far my favorite um, marriage and sex author and researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a quote from his book, Passionate Marriage. The quote, if we use relationships properly, they make us grow into adults. Marriage is a people-growing machine. So I have used that quote many
0: times. Yeah, right? yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorites. I remember when you first used it in one of the talks of the JFI. It was such a powerful quote.
1: So uh, when David uses marriage, he is not referring to chuppah and... Um, ketubah and and legal. He means any relationship between two adults that are emotionally connected and monogamous. Right. So uh, he defines marriage. Anybody that just basically uh, agrees to be together. So what does he mean that relationships grow us into adults? Well, Ellie, you have a background in um, uh, in uh, dance, right? You have a background in da- and also training. You did some uh, personal training at yep. one point, right? Okay. Yep. So when you first work with someone right? And they haven't been to a gym in 25 years. I don't know if you, did you ever work with any, but like a real beginner?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I was a trainer for like seven years. So yeah, I worked with all kinds of people. Okay. Yeah. I'm
1: just curious, did, did, did you warn them or did you not warn them that this might be painful the next morning?
0: Uh, I did that with beginners and people who had been doing it for years. You know, you always have to, yeah, it's, it's usually quite painful.
1: <laughs> what, what, but why? How come? How how come you would do that? What would the what would the purpose why be? Why would
0: I warn them or why yeah. would it be painful?
1: Well, those are two separate things. Um, but I'm kind of curious why you warn them.
0: So I would warn them because often if you don't tell people that it's going to be painful the next day, well, okay, caveat. I would re I would tell people first. There's a difference between pain that hurts and pain that grows. Okay. So I was always very clear with clients, like the pain that we're going for is the pain that grows and gets you healthy, not the pain that hurts. And that you have to know the difference between those two things, because you have to stop if it's a pain that hurts and, but keep going if it's a pain that grows. So that would always be sort of the beginning caveat. And then second of all, you, I would tell people first, because otherwise when the pain comes, they would think I've hurt myself or done something wrong rather than this is what it takes to grow. And then and then you also need a plan to mitigate the pain as much as possible.
1: And you know this is I you know you might have done something like this. I had trainers do this with me. You have to explain to people that for muscle to break down, it's painful to regrow, to be stronger and this right. the problem is if a trainer doesn't tell that to someone, they're going to go home and they're going to think I did something wrong or this right. trainer did something wrong and they will leave and they won't exercise and exercise will be right. seen as a problem, not the solution. Mm-hmm. What David Snarch is talking about here is a comp- and this is where uh, in my world, people get real um, sensitive about this because there are two worlds out there. Uh, I, I mean, there's there's more than two, but, th- but there is the empathy attachment world for mm-hmm. marriage therapy. And then there is more of, um, well, I mean, th- it's more complex than this, but let's call it the, the more systems approach. Now, the people in the systems world are people you might've heard. Esther Perel, Harriet Lerner, yeah. David Snarch, okay, Marie Bowen, um, uh, Peter Kramer, so that's that world. In the attachment world, Gottman, Hendricks, um, yeah. there, there's, yeah, okay. Uh, what's her face in Ottawa? I forget her name. Anyways, the, the snarch idea is that if you make things too empathic and comfortable for people, it will not create enough of a crucible for people to change. And what's going to happen is you will, you will, each partner will bully the other one to keeping things safe and secure. Okay. So the idea is if you love me you wouldn't. And then your partner goes, "Well, okay, well if you love me you wouldn't." And then and then look into your partner's eyes and and tell them tell them your pain. And so what Snarch observed is that if you do that, okay, you might get peace at all costs, but you ain't going to get growth. So if the idea is maybe not to argue, Sure. Now I'm I am being purposely polemic on this. I think that the attachment people have brought some very important things to the world. I think right. uh, John Gottman has brought some very important uh, information to to the world of marriage research. But what's what Snarch's approach, and perhaps it's because I'm a military historian. I, I like reading about battles. Yeah, he's much more battle hardened. What I mean by that is Melvin ain't changing for crap. Meaning that there is no if if um, what was her name Carol. Carol.
0: Yeah. Right in
1: the, yeah. Yeah. If Carol would have tried the soft, empathic, I'm just going to listen <laughs> to his pain. Can you imagine how that would have gone? You know what would have happened? Carol would have had to regulate, just like what Snarch said, her whole life to get him more bars of soap and so that he can wash his hands. And that she, and then if, if he cancels dinner 17 times, so just go along with it. If he, if he treats her kid wrong, right, you have to understand his anxiety. Right. What Snarch said is what Carol did which was Carol basically looked at him, kept the focus on herself, right, and created a crucible. And the crucible was something like this. Buddy, you ain't gonna treat me like crap, okay? That's number one. And all of your little anxieties in this, whatever you gotta do, do your thing, okay? But I'm not gonna, I don't have to live with it, you know? I got a kid, I got a busy life. And what she did is she created a crucible. So what's a crucible? What David Snarch says, people growing machines happen. When someone in a relationship moves the focus from other to self, right? And defines themselves in some version of I am willing to do this, I am not willing to do that. 98% of couples, Ellie, who who come into my office, it's some version of you better, you better not. It is not I will, I will not. It's if you love me, you would, or how could you do this to me? It's all outside of yourself, Mm -hmm. which gives all the power to your partner, you know right. David Snarch has this beautiful line it's counterintuitive you got to think about this the person who has the least desire for sex controls the sexual relationship in the marriage mm-hmm. so interesting so interesting the person with the least desire right you mm-hmm. know human beings are funny in how they get power right in in the, in the dynamics between two people right what was beautiful about um, Melvin's line, I'm just speeding this along here, Ellie, because I know we're we're running out of time here, but what's so beautiful about it, he goes, I have a compliment for you. And when we think of a compliment, we think of you're so pretty, right? Right. Or you're so handsome, or you're so smart. Mm. But Melvin didn't want to lose Carol, like he lost the dog, like like maybe he looked at his life and said, do I want to spend the rest of my life writing about characters in a novel, not living that way? Right. 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 So what does Melvin do? Beautiful. His compliment is that for the, my entire life, I hate taking pills. I hate taking pills. But some version, I'm going to add some stuff because he didn't say this, but you are too important to lose. So I started taking the pills again. And her line is, what the hell does you taking pills have to do for a compliment for me? Right. And it's such a beautiful line. I get chills up my spine every time I say yeah. it. It's just so beautiful is because you make me want to be a better man.
0: Ah, yeah. It's a gorgeous line for sure.
1: It's, it's a beautiful idea. We don't all get it in, you know, I got to say in, in my own marriage and I can say this with full confidence. Um, it takes me a lot to get on the other side of this. Meaning I know all this kind of stuff and I still will kick and scream with my immaturities and anxieties and right. But all the moments in my marriage with Aliza, when she has been clear right from our engagement to uh, onwards, where she was very clear and kept the focus on herself and I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision. Am I going to go to the worst in me, the right. reactive part, the immature part, or am I going to grow? It was a crucible that forced me to grow. It's a mm-hmm. choice. We, we don't all have to grow.
0: Yes. But 100%. David
1: Snarch's idea is that th- there has to be enough tension. There has to be enough tension in the crucible to force that growth or else, let's just go back to his first quote, or else. If you can't regulate your own emotional temperature, you will spend your entire life regulating everyone around everyone else around you to keep you comfortable. But yeah, and so
0: in that way, what comes, you know, if 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 the crucible is strong enough and the person isn't willing to grow, doesn't see that as you make me want to be a better man, then often the choice is cut off. You know, now we're going into a whole yeah yeah I mean this is
1: you know I mean often what snarch will get questioned with by people in the audience is you know my partner's having an affair and he doesn't want to leave so now what am I supposed to do I told them what I'm willing to not so what Snarch you know often would say some version of this is um you know there are consequences in life for every decision you make with your spouse or your kids the question is what consequences can you live with when you go to bed at night
0: and that's really right. tough, Ellie,
1: because, you know, when a client's in my office, and they're like, I don't want to be alone. I don't want to leave. I don't, I'm so scared of being alone. No, no, that, you know, I, I have to, th- I hear that. I'm like, yeah, that's, it's true. Yeah. No, if you, if your partner refuses to leave their lover or refuses to, you know, go to therapy or yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. That's, that's true. And then what I'll ask them is, well, what's the consequences if you stay without any change? Right. <laughs> my kids, uh, those are consequences too. And what it does is it creates a crucible that forces people to grapple, not with their partner, but with themselves, right? That's right. And there are no easy answers to this. So when people are looking for an easy answer, that's what drives me crazy. When sometimes people give advice in terms of this is like, this is the best path. There is no best path. They both have consequences. The question is, what can you live with? And for Melvin, for Melvin, he was willing to sacrifice the rituals and all the things that gave him comfort because Carol was too important. So right. beautiful right. film. That's my, those are my notes on this film. Yeah. For those got the newsletter. You'll read more about it in the newsletter.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. So tell people again, how do they sign up for your newsletter?
1: Yeah, go to my website natigal.com, and um, you just give your email and I send out a newsletter bi um, bimonthly uh, about a film. It's almost always about the films we do in the podcast because why would I do more work? Right, Ellie? <laughs> Who wants to do more? More work, but uh,
0: we're the last person anyone should ask that question to. Because <laughs> We'll be so, like, why not?
1: <laughs> um, Amazing. So there's that. And uh, Ellie, if people want to subscribe or listen to this uh, podcast, what's the best place to go to?
0: So the best places would be um, Spotify. Uh, you could actually go to anchor there's an app called anchor.fm so you could listen if you want to on a laptop or desktop there but please uh, or apple or usually any of the podcasts but usually spotify is the most reliable it gets the newest episodes the quickest Um, and please um, subscribe because it allows when people subscribe it allows other people to um, find the podcast and and learn a little bit more about it so um yeah now
1: I I have already I put a stake in the ground for the next film I'm going to say it out loud you can always push back we don't have to do it but I really really want to do uh, that film with Andy McDowell and John Turturro um uh, okay
0: I gotta try to find it what's it called again
1: I'll send you the link I'll send you the link I, I think that I was able to rent it on um uh Apple you know you can rent films on Apple TV yeah. or whatever it's called yeah um it's called uh, I forget but it has uh, Kramer from uh, Seinfeld is in it as the crazy Jewish uncle okay and it's the only film that I can think of Ellie that we haven't touched on yet with issues of faith okay and spirituality um it's just it's such a beautiful film oh it's one all of right
0: let's do it can we okay, do it we'll we'll say yeah we'll do it why not un, un, yeah.
1: it's called un unsung or unstrung heroes unsung okay. heroes Okay. okay,
0: we'll send it out. I'll, I'll post it on Facebook if anybody wants to know what it's going to be so they can watch it before they watch our or listen to our podcast. Um, okay, amazing. As good great. as it gets. Come okay. on, I, just to end, that line when he walks out of the psychiatrist's office and he looks at everybody sitting in the waiting room and he's like, what if this is as good as it gets? <laughs> and he just like kicks them in the teeth with that little truth bomb. It's, it's so good. It's got to be one of the best lines in all of movies. It was That's fantastic. a great line. This is amazing. All right, if this okay. is as good as it gets, we're doing okay. Thanks Avram. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.